Ding dong, bing bong rollers. Alon from Quid Pro Roll, your favorite soup slash wrestling slash dragon slash actual slash play TTRPG slash cast. Do you enjoy epic prophecies, frazzled GMs, maybe a little arson? Then give us a listen and check out all the other fantastic shows on the May Contain Action Network. Forgotten Paths, Unvaulted, May Contain Action, even the Goblins and Growlers podcast. Oh my God. That's right. All right here. Hey, Goblins. Brandon here. Uh, If you enjoy what we do and you'd like to help support us create more and maybe even take the podcast to weekly, then the best way right now that you can support us is to head over to patreon.com slash goblinsgrowlers. You can find all the different stuff we do there, one-page dungeons, uh, bonus audio for things, all kinds of stuff. So head on over there, uh, and even if it's just a dollar or, you know, however much you're comfortable doing, or if you can't put anything toward the Patreon, just tell a friend about it. Tell somebody about the podcast. That's another great way to support us. So, uh, patreon.com slash goblins growlers, uh, and we'll see y'all soon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Goblins and Growlers podcast. I'm Josh Maltby at Black Cloak DM on Discord and Blue Sky. I'm Brandon Dingus uh, at Wave Brandalore on Discord and Instagram. I see we're just dropping Twitter completely. <laughs> I Well, first of all, it's technically called X now, which feels weird to me because we're still talking about tweeting on X. Especially since the domain name that I go to if I want to look at that site is Twitter.com. <laughs> There's also the fact that they broke embeds, so... You can't link to things anymore. You have to use a third-party embed linking website. Yeah, is it just... is. The, the, the year-long decline of Twitter is just a masterclass in the poor business skills of Elon Musk. It's very easy <laughs> to be successful when you have a family fortune behind you. But Ugh. to take a, to first of all, to overpay severely for a business that has embedded itself in the culture, uh, like people, like tweet became a part of the average lexicon of everybody and you would decide to get away from that kind of free publicity for your product just baked in that would be like if kleenex changed their brand name right now (laughs) or band-aid yeah it's just so stupid um so yeah and and that setting aside all the the other things that he's doing with the company uh it's just just monumentally stupid. Yeah, it's pretty dumb. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a tear that we got on too early. <laughs> <laughs> and we shall never mention Twitter again. Uh, I wouldn't make that kind of promise, but uh, it'll be it'll be more rare than it used to be. Uh-huh. So today, I believe we even, we even to- teased this. I was about to say toes, and I was like, that's not how the past tense of tease goes. Yeah, don't uh, we, tease me, bro. <laughs> I believe we teased this in our episode two weeks ago, but today we're going to be talking about Planescape Adventures in the Multiverse. Yeah, because we've decided that we're not going to uh, chase this idea of being like 
newsbreakers and news givers and anything. So that's why we're reviewing it a month after it came out. But it's fine. It's just fine. Look, if people want the latest and greatest cutting edge news about Dungeons and Dragons stuff that's coming out, they've come to the wrong show. (laughs) And I'm so sorry that we misled them. I will say, I will say, if uh, you want to find the latest and greatest Dungeons and Dragons news, uh, do yourself a favor and just Google the name JM, like JR Zambrano. Is that that what it is? He works for like Bell of Lost Souls.net or, so, or one of those sites, and he's always on top of everything. <laughs> I'm fairly certain his day job is being on top of those things. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, it makes it really easy when you get paid to do that kind of stuff to the exclusion of other stuff you have to do in your life. Um, yeah, J.R. Zambrano, Bell of Lost Souls. Uh, he's a staff writer over there. Follow him if you want to if you want to get up to the minute stuff. Oh, man. His his Twitter handle is J.R. Armungander. I'm I'm is that the same guy? I think so. Because he. OK, yeah, it is the same guy. Yeah, the, tweet- the same guy. The tweet that was highlighted. See, we're already we're breaking we're breaking our Twitter embargo. <laughs> the tweet that was highlighted on the Google landing page uh, has him like quoting a property development CEO. So that's what threw me. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's let's talk Planescape. We're yeah. we're a few weeks behind its actual release, but uh, that gave us time to really pour over things and read them thoroughly or it would have if both of us had free time uh i mean i I felt like i gave it a pretty thorough read i i know i read through it uh i i'm not gonna pretend that i did a super thorough job you know with wizards having you know the print and the digital options it seems like for you they really need to just make an audiobook option (laughs) (laughs) on your ridiculous commute you could listen to all these books yeah, hit me hit me on my two and a half hours of driving I do generally five days a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's a reason why I listen to so many podcasts. <laughs> I, I would love it if they did these in audiobook. <laughs> <laughs> like you open up Audible and you've got like Audible has those chapter markers and stuff on it, but there's like 10,000 of them for like every little <laughs> header that's in the book and you skip to it. Oh, God. Just individual monster blocks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. It sounds like a nightmare. Uh, so, Planescape. Um, this came out, what was it? Was it three weeks ago or four weeks ago? Uh, as of I recording. Was, I think it's like four weeks ago tomorrow. Okay. As of recording. As of recording. Mm-hmm. Which... Recording isn't getting released for 12 days. So, right. Uh, we're, we're again, much like I said last time, we're actually back on schedule, folks. It's wild. Wild. Yeah, it's, it's very, it's very comforting and nice. It feels so good. And to know that we're giving Scott audio far enough in advance that we can be like, yeah, you got time to work on this. <laughs> oh, so wonderful. So, this is a complete remaster of the original Planescape setting guide, right? From mm-hmm. 1994. Correct. And it's got three books and a, a beautiful DM screen that all come as part of the box set. 
We're looking mm-hmm. at, um, what is it? It's 94 for the digital and physical bundle, 80 yeah. for just the physical. Right. Right. And it comes in that sleeve too. So it's getting the spelljammer yeah. treatment, which yeah. I've, I've had opinions on in the past, like all, all in all, I'm pro them releasing these campaign settings in sort of a multi-book fashion because my my biggest criticism was like Curse of Strahd didn't feel special when it came out in a single box or a single book for fifth edition. So I'm glad that they're doing that. Um, but, you know, as always, sort of the, the, the neckbeard in me is always going to be wishing for the like the original boxed sets like you would get in the 90s. And speaking of, since you brought up the price of the of the books, I, I got curious about this today when we were getting ready to record. So I looked it up. So um, I have a Forgotten Realms box set that I keep on my bookshelf behind me. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to remember what the MSRP on it was. And uh, I thought it was like 30 bucks. So I pulled it out. I looked on the back. Sure enough, US MSRP for it was $30. Um, I, I was betting sort of dollars to donuts on that, that that was going to be the same for the Planescape box set that came out in uh, 94. Uh, this came out in 93. Uh, so uh, found an old review of it that listed the MSRP because I couldn't find a high enough resolution picture of the box set because it's, you know, 30 years old. And it was also $30. So I ran it through an inflation calculator just to see sort of how much we're paying for this stuff now. So $30 in 1994 has the same buying power in 2023 as $62.37. So, you know, it's it's the money is like halved in value, basically. And uh, so for the print version of this, we're being charged $80. Uh, and I guess that's just MSRP. Uh, like, so it could be marked up further if you bought it uh, somewhere else. Uh, and that also, obviously none of this includes tax or anything like that. So $80. So uh, that $30 in 1994 would be 62.37 today. So $80 minus 62.37. After you adjust for inflation, this costs about $17.63 more than what the original Planescape box set did. That's almost a 30% increase in costs after you adjust for inflation. And I was complaining about that before we started recording. And you raised a couple of good points, which I, I tend to agree with that, like, well, like the art for a lot of those was black and white back 30 years ago. Um, didn't There was no shading to be had except for some special splash pages and things like that. Um, and with with those box sets, everything was soft cover. Uh, you might have a really nice sort of vinylish soft cover on one of them, and then the others maybe less or so, but it was all saddle stitched and everything. Uh, so now we get three hardbound books with full color, uh, and probably as you said, the artists are getting paid a lot more than maybe what they were paid thirty years ago, which is fair. Um, so. At least there's an easy explanation for for uh, an almost thirty percent cost increase after inflation. I, I guess, I guess you just have to decide what you value, right? Because like I'm sure there are some people who are like, I just want the information. I just want to be able to use the setting. I don't need all the bells and whistles. Um, you know, just give it to me in a stripped down PDF, which wizards will never do. Um, PDF stripped down or otherwise, they'll never give it to you in a PDF. But I just thought that was interesting. Um, the 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 sort of uh, adjusted cost increase on that and 
if you really like books as a sensual object, then maybe paying almost $20 more for it than you would have 30 years ago um, is worth it to you. I don't have necessarily an opinion on it other than I don't like it when things cost more. I mean, that's fair. I, I will point out, if we're talking about 30 years ago money, we're talking about $8. Yeah, I guess that's it'd fair. Be, it'd be the difference but, between a $30 box set and a $38 box set. But we don't live 30 years ago. We live no, we now. Don't. <laughs> we, we live do. now. And a lot of people who love Dungeons and Dragons are working minimum wage jobs, which last I checked, uh, the dollar value has not kept up with inflation since what, the 60s? Something like so... that. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw I saw a story about that not too long ago where somebody was just doing like an annual analysis on it. But I can't remember the figures, of course, because they would be helpful to me right now. So, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I uh you know, I, when I was writing the newsletter uh, for last month, uh, I think I was messaging you when I was going through the Wizards of the Coast um, like quarterly call statement. Um, so, uh, you know, they were it was end of, it was end of Q3 and they were doing it in like the first month of Q4. So they were doing a lot of their wrap up stuff for the year and doing some projections in 2024. And I was like, wow, we should we should have we should do like more episodes that involve this stuff because it was just talking about how. Um, like wizards and D and magic uh, especially has just been carrying Hasbro for uh, cause they had like a pretty shitty year otherwise. But uh, that stuff is just fascinating to me because there's, you know, there's a lot more, there's a lot more context and a lot more facets to what goes on other than just like, Oh, they put out a new setting guide or this, this book is overpriced and kind of lame. Like it, it's just interesting all the interplay with uh, with the Hasbro and all its subsidiaries and everything, and how that affects decisions that are made for D anD D that we can complain about on our podcasts. I do think you and I are more likely to read something like that and parse it out into language that makes sense mm-hmm. uh, instead of telling people like, "Oh, go check out the news articles," which are going to be kind of dry, kind of hard to read. Yeah. Yeah, most business journalism is not written for easy understanding. Or for excitement. Yeah. Like, the only excitement they get is red line go up. <laughs> <laughs> or line is no longer red. Now is black. <laughs> oh, black line. Very mm-hmm. good. Um, um, so, so Planescape. Yes. How are, how are we feeling about multiverses kind of in general? So I, I, this was not something I came into this review um, thinking. It was when I was just sort of putting my thoughts together before we started recording. Um, and I was rereading like the first, hey, like the intro. Because um, like Josh and I, because it's three books, Josh and I decided to split the work up a little bit. So I took a look at um, Sigil in the Outlands, which is just sort of the overall setting book. And you did the campaign book and the bestiary. Yeah, Turn of Fortune's Wheel is the campaign book. And then the bestiary is Morte's Planar Parade. Okay. And so I'm I'm going back through the overall setting guide and it starts talking about like, what is Planescape? Because obviously like some people need to be reintroduced to Planescape. I think the last like, I, I'm perfectly prepared for somebody to tell me that I'm wrong, but I feel like the last like big Planescape thing that came out was like Planescape Torment or its sequel. Um, and that was in like the, the 2000s somewhere, like the, but sometime between 
2000 and 2010. And I can't be any more specific than that. Um, but I can see Josh looking intently at the camera. So that means he's looking at his monitor. So that means he's looking this I, up. <laughs> I had the Wikipedia still open. Yeah. So I, I was like, I have the answers in front of me. I just need to scroll to the right part of the page to see it. The game Planescape Torment came out in 2009 and was released as a download. Uh, wait, that can't be right. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm I'm misreading this. It it ceased being in print on DVD in 2009. That does make and sense. Was, and was released as a downloadable on uh, Good Old Games in yeah. 2010. I feel like it may have come uh, out in 99 because I remember it, buying it. Was it was released in 99. Okay, because I remember buying it in a Walmart in 2001 for uh, like, and I bought the Game of the Year edition or something like that for like $15. Um, but anyway. Uh, the last I, book was 98 and it was Faction War. Okay. So yeah, I, f I feel like not a lot of Planescape has come out in the last 20 years. Um, so obviously people need to be reintroduced to the idea of Planescape. It's easy for me or anybody of my ilk who's been sort of vaguely involved in Dungeons and Dragons for, you know, since the 90s to know what it is. But um, it just goes into explaining it as like, oh, it's, you know, the crossroads of all the planes and everything, not just the material planes, but all the all the other ones that are, you know, because the material plane is basically like your fey runes and such. It's like stuff that you are familiar with if you think about role like elves in the forest tabletop role playing games. Uh, but then you get all this crazy stuff. Uh, and I am wondering, like, is Planescape necessary as a concept in sort of a post MCU pop culture space where in the last several years, uh, the idea of the multiverse has really sort of suffused the zeitgeist. Um, there's like, nobody needs an explanation for what a multiverse is anymore, right? So does Dungeons and Dragons need its own sort of multiversal architecture as opposed to can people just like, would we have been fine with people just sort of inventing their own stuff? Or is it still useful to have something like Planescape, which is a touchstone creating sort of the multiversal rules for Dungeons and Dragons. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get what you mean. I think for me, the concept of Planescape involves multiversal travel, but is much more focused on the like elemental aspects of things, the uh, alignment aspects of things like heaven and hell uh, the land of the dryad, like that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. It's it to me on what I remember of Planescape before this release and based on this release, it seems less like, you know, you're Rick and Morty where it's like, oh, there's infinite iterations of you and your family over infinite universes that you can interact with and more. There's an infinite variety to the types of worlds you can visit mm -hmm. which i don't know it it's similar but different to me yeah and i'm not saying this is really like a necessary question like i don't even necessarily believe this i just think it's interesting how the culture has shifted to much more of an awareness of let's call it just possibilities that multiverses raise 
uh, in that kind of situation. So, I mean, is it necessary? Well, if Wizards wanted to meet their goals this quarter, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, conceptually, I wonder if it would have been better. And this is and and you can pillar anybody can pillar me for this all they want because I'm fully aware of what I've said in the past. Um, was it a good idea to resurrect Planescape? Or could they have interpreted it much differently? Obviously, they're not going to, let's be realistic, they're not going to not use the name Planescape just because it has too much cachet and marketability, right? But does it have to be Zeb Cook's Planescape? Could they not have come up with something very different and given us something very new, like a whole new interpretation of what what uh, their their multiverse and sigil and everything is? I think if I was operating at a high level in Wizards of the Coast, mm -hmm. even if what I really wanted to do was something like Planescape, but kind of unique and different and its own thing, I think I'd still want to build that off of the platform that is Planescape. Mm -hmm. And here's why is how many nerds have been clamoring for a Planescape re-release for modern systems mm -hmm. for literal decades. I would like to counter that with a question as well. How Go many, on. how many nerds have been clamoring for a dark sun re-release uh, for decades? <laughs> on modern systems fair but dark sun's a little bit more of a complex nut to crack you know mm -hmm. that's uh the world is already not a bright shiny and cheerful place i think mm -hmm. dark sun is one of those systems that works best when people aren't already depressed so we can only release re-release a modified dark sun in the boom times <laughs> when there's no right. threat of recession and the unemployment rate is very low <laughs> I mean, yeah, a little bit. Like, <laughs> you think about when all of those post-apocalypse stories were coming out, like Mad Max and uh, Dark Sun and, like, all of those sorts of things. It wasn't when we were in the middle of some of our worst financial crises. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> when when Joe Donka released The End, that was in the 90s and sort of the boom Clinton economic years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, all, all I'm saying is, um, I, I've said many times that I appreciate big swings, whether or not they end up working out and like doing what they did with this Planescape re-release, just talking about it from a content standpoint was a very, very safe play. Um, I agree. It was there, there, there's nothing. I, I think it's, I think it's well done. Like I'll just spoil sort of my thoughts on it. Like, I think it's very well done. But there's nothing that surprises me. There's nothing that really makes me go, oh, wow, I can't believe they did that. That was pretty great. Um, I, I would have that's that's one of the that's really why I'm saying like, oh, it would have been nice if they'd taken Planescape and tried to give me like a little bit of a reinterpretation of it. Not not like an updated rehash. Right. Like, let's talk. Let's talk about Frasier. For example, I've been trying to really, 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 I've really been trying to enjoy the new Frasier series on Paramount Plus. Uh, I love Frasier as a character. I loved Frasier on Cheers. I loved all 11 seasons of Frasier. You know, I wish they had 
try to do something a little new and different with it rather than trying to rehash it and make it a shadow of what it was. I still enjoy it, but it is nowhere near as good as the, I'm going to call it the original, even though Frasier, the series is the second iteration of Frasier. Um, the, the new Frasier is not as good. And I feel like this version of Planescape is just fine. It's just, it's just as good as the original, but should you ever settle for just as good? Yeah. I, I wonder in part if the trouble that you're running into is that the stuff that would be new, interesting, fun, and kind of fascinating to explore is all in one of the books I got. Maybe, maybe, but I'm, I'm trying to think of it from a bit more of a, like a global perspective on it as well. Like just what I've got in sort of the setting book, like it's not telling me anything super different from, from what I would have expected. Right. And right. I think that's, it's sort of the same reason that I don't like the Beatles. And that's not to say that the Beatles didn't produce good music. It's just, I, I never listened to the Beatles when I was growing up because my dad didn't listen to the Beatles. So by the time I actually sat down and listened to like the white album, uh, and several others, uh, I had already heard all the music that had been developed since the Beatles up until that time. So when I went back to listen to it, it felt very common because I'd already heard everything that evolved out of it. Uh, and that's sort of how I feel looking at this. It's like played the original Planescape, was familiar with it. Wasn't my favorite setting. Uh, I didn't play it like all the time, but I was familiar enough with it. And I don't really feel like this is giving me conceptually anything new or at it'd least be, not much new. It'd be like listening to Nirvana the first time after having already consumed the entire Limp Biscuit discography. Correct. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in utero cannot hold up to chocolate starfish. <laughs> um, I I get what you're saying. I think I think I understand where you're coming from. I I think that's a bit of a tricky tightrope to walk, right? Because if you change stuff a lot, then the people who just wanted a remake are going to be mad that you change stuff. Mm -hmm. If you change stuff not at all then the people who want something new and fresh and interesting don't get anything new and fresh and interesting. Right. And here's the key. Here's the key that I, I, I think sort of answers the issue. This wasn't made for me. This I'm, you know, I'm, I'm almost 42 years old. You know, I've, I've seen everything that D and D's had to offer since second edition was the active edition. Right. Uh, they with, you know, fifth edition and now going into uh, what they're not calling sixth edition, but that's, you know, what it's sort of evolving into the next iteration of it. Like, it's not about satisfying the old fans. It's about capturing the new fans. And they're sitting on uh, this treasure trove of IP uh, that they can re-release to people who've never seen it before and treat it as new. Like, I'd do that if I was them. Um, it's like... And here's another thing people people get mad at me for, uh, uh, or some people at least. It's like, I didn't care for the Star Wars sequels. I thought Force Awakens was pretty good. Last Jedi was terrible. Rise of Skywalker, unfulfilling. Um, but that's fine, because what I realized while I was watching those movies is it wasn't made for me. 
it was made for kids who'd never seen Star Wars in the theaters before, because before that, the last movie that came out was in 2005. Um, uh, the, the TV shows are there for me. Mandalorian, Ahsoka are there for me to further that kind of storyline. So I think that's, if you know, if, if you look at this or you look at Spelljammer or if they ever end up doing some sort of modified Dark Sun, if you look at it and be like, oh, well, like, this doesn't excite me. I mean, it's probably because it wasn't designed to excite you. And that's fine because if you can show people something that's new to them and bring them into the hobby, into the experience, then that's great. Like, I'm probably not going to give you $80 for it, but I'm glad that somebody will and it sparks their imagination. So that that's... I think it's part of like growing up and maturing too for that. And it's part of it that I don't think a lot of people realize all the time is like you do eventually age out of things and it's okay to just be like, Oh, well, like, like in the nineties, I watched power Rangers all the time. Like I'm still a fan of power Rangers, but also like I don't sit down and watch episodes of power Rangers because they are simplistic and repetitive because that's what appeals to children. Um, but I still enjoy, like, I still love the concept and I love going back to it every now and again. Uh, but I've aged out of it and that's fine because like content doesn't exist to grow old with me. <laughs> yeah, it is. I will say the folks who are like, well, this isn't like it was when I was a kid. It's like, well, yeah, because it's for kids now, not for you, who is now like <laughs> high 30s, low 40s, wherever we're at. Like, there's no reason to insult people's IQs, Josh. (laughs) I was talking about (laughs) ages. Um, But like, yeah, like you're going to age out of some stuff. The brand might stick around with that same age group because that's who they're able to appeal to. It's like all the people who are complaining about My Little Pony not being complex or adult enough. And it's like, yeah, it's a show for children. Yeah. Like, what <laughs> what are you, you doing? You were lucky that they were cool with the brony movement. Just take the win and, and stop <laughs> complaining. <laughs> um I think I think you're absolutely right. I think Planescape is designed for people who have not experienced Planescape before and people who were like I just want Planescape for 5e. Just give me Planescape for 5e. I would love that so much. Please God. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not for people who are like, I really enjoyed Planescape back in the day. I'm wondering what they could do with the franchise given 30 years. Right. Like what sort of new and fascinating stuff are they going to come up with? I don't think at the very least, I don't think the core rules are for that. The fortunes wheel adventure might be, and I'd be kind of intrigued to pass that book off to you, let you get a, a look through it and maybe get a brief idea of your thoughts after that because mm-hmm. i found the adventure book really compelling yeah i'm um, looking forward to hearing you talk about it you only sort of briefly touched on it when, before we were recording well you you know me if i start talking too much then i'll be wasting that sweet sweet content mm-hmm. yeah um, it's hard for me to fake reactions a second time <laughs> we're not actors yeah <laughs> yeah of yeah. the skills we have acting is not we're no critical role over here <laughs> Uh, I I really enjoyed the adventure book. The mm-hmm. the monster manual is about what you'd expect for something like Planescape. 
It adds several varieties of monsters specific to regions that you're going to be exploring. Um, I find that really helpful in some respects, because if you look at the SRD, or honestly, even if you go looking at Mordenkainen's, you're, you don't have a lot of like celestial type monsters. Mm-hmm. There just aren't that many. There's there, like, was, there wasn't a lot of that in the, 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 yeah, we're talking about the multiverse bestiary that came out, right? Yeah. 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 Mordenkainen's Tome of Beasts? No. No, no, no your base is Cobalt Press. Yeah, you're mashing up two <laughs> companies there. Um, it was like maybe Tome it was like Morden Kynan's Guide to the Multiverse. Yeah, that because, might be right. Yeah, because I remember a bunch of people that we know were like, "I didn't realize it was a bestiary. If I had known that, I wouldn't have bought it." Like they thought it was going to be like a Planescape Light or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there, there were I think five Celestials in mm-hmm. the entirety of Morden Kynan's. There's another like five in this monster book alone. Mm-hmm. And if they continue expanding on Planescape, there's probably going to be more. So right. if this sells well, they will continue expanding because that's how wizards do. Right. Um, the adventure itself. It's I, I have mixed feelings about the adventure itself. The little bits, the piece to piece where you're like exploring individual regions, you're having individual adventures, things like that. I find really fascinating and really fun. The mm-hmm. world is really fascinating and really fun. Um, you highlighted one of the, one of the rules of Planescape mm-hmm. and I grabbed one of the others. Um, so there's, there's these two heuristic rules for, uh, Planescape, one of which is the rule of threes. Mm-hmm. where things tend to happen in threes. Uh, there's also, a, very early in the campaign, you enter a casino in Sigil, mm-hmm. and there's a gith gambler there who calls himself Rule of Three and exclusively bets and plays in uh, Exponents of Three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think the Rule of Threes is an interesting flavor mechanic because like that means that the party can do something and then the GM has sort of carte blanche to be able to excuse two other things happening as a consequence of that. And they can happen very far apart in space and very far apart in time, if necessary. <laughs> well, that's so one of the things I did find fascinating is uh, the campaign. You're basically these kind of multiversal glitched beings. Mm-hmm. So you wake up, you wake up in a cold stone room with no idea how you got there. And very little idea about who you are at all. So the uh, opening to Planescape Torment. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not 100%, but I, I will take your word for it. Uh-huh. And a big part of the adventure is finding out that you are multiversally glitched mm-hmm. and trying to fix it. Josh, do you, um, know how you, do you know how you kill a glitch? I, how do you kill a glitch? You destroy their glylactery. That's so dumb. <laughs> I thought of it earlier. I'm laughing so hard. I thought of it an hour ago when you were describing that to me before we recorded, but I figured I'd save it for for the recording. Uh, uh gosh, dang it! So, so part of being multiversely glitched is that if you if you die, if your mm-hmm. character dies, um, they can be glitch swapped 
with a different incarnation of that character. So it's uh-huh. the same person, uh, same soul, but they could be a druid instead of a paladin or uh-huh. something like that. Do they get two hearts and a phone booth? <laughs> <laughs> not quite, not quite, uh, because the way it's written is using the rule of threes. Mm-hmm. So if if you lose three of your incarnations, then it's new character time. Okay. But I kind of like that because you can be like, I really like the personality of this character, but I wonder what she'd be like as a ranger. You know? Oh, no. The way to, the way to play that is to just make a random table for race and class. Like, and, and just make more and more of it random, like subclass <laughs> and, and stuff too. Like, just go full Doctor Who with it. You don't know what you're going to get. I mean, they do, uh, in the intro to the book, they're like, if you want it to be more random, then wait until the first person dies, and then everybody writes their second incarnation at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you want it to be a little more planned and controlled, then have everybody write all three of their incarnations during session zero, which I was like, uh, no, writing, uh, writing one character sheet is challenging enough for me writing three in a sitting. I know some people don't that, you know, myself included do not deal well with, um, like the anxiety generated by unexpectedness. Uh, so I can, I can get why some people would really want to be able to like plan that out. I just think in that instance, like if you've got the mechanic, just you know run the full distance with it and and just see you know life is like a box of chocolates like see (laughs) see where that gets you i mean you could also if if you are not someone who handles that sort of situation well Mm -hmm. then maybe your incarnation doesn't pop up until the end of the thing that killed you Mm -hmm. um you know maybe maybe you can have a breather or you can do the poltergeist thing. I sometimes do at my tables when someone dies 30 minutes into a two hour session. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Your regeneration is, uh, it's having trouble. It's going to take longer. <laughs> it's, it's processing all of the bits and boops. Mm-hmm. Uh, another rule of the universe is the unity of rings mm-hmm. where things in the planar multiverse have a tendency to come back around to where they started. Uh, this is ex- this is explained at the top by uh, it's a curved universe that extends yeah. to infinity, but you always return to your starting point given enough time. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like the whole theory of a curved universe. Like if space time is four dimensionally curved, then if you set off in one direction over a given period of time, you will return to where you started like an ant yeah. crawling on top of a balloon. Uh, it just may be longer than the age of the universe, uh, given universal expansion. Uh, and you'd have to be traveling much faster than light. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but yeah. Uh, and I, I like, you know, I like that when you're dealing with something like multiversal because you just keep going further and further and further out. And like, it's interesting to think about like you're also getting closer and closer and closer to where you were. Yeah. Well, and it's also, it makes it easier to go, oh, you're exploring in this region, you're hopelessly lost, mm-hmm. you're really confused about where you've been and where you're going. Oh, you're back at the start. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. 
Um, so I found that I found that to be particularly fascinating. There's like these rules that kind of govern play a little bit mm-hmm. because they're just like universal effects that are mm-hmm. part of playing in this space. I, you know, and we talked about this a little bit before we started recording too, but it was very weird how like in a couple of the different books they call out like there are three fundamental rules of the universe. Here's one of them. And it yeah. just doesn't group all of them together. And you have to just go all over the place looking for it. And I'm like, it must not be that fundamental if you can't put it in a bulleted list for me here. <laughs> uh, I will add that the third rule is one that you and I probably won't discuss at length because both of us think it's silly, which is uh, the center of all, which is that wherever you are is the center of the multiverse according to you. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, yeah, the the center of the observable universe from a place you stand is where you stand. Yeah, it's like very <laughs> anthropocentric. <laughs> That's fine, sure, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, and getting like, just I can knock out a few things really quick, just overall about yeah. the the setting. Um, so sigil, the, the great city at the, at the center, uh, it's at the top of the spire. It exists on the surface of a Taurus. So it's, it's almost like if you're inside an O'Neill cylinder or something like that. And like, you look up, you can see the other side of the city over there. And it's very kind of like vaguely fourth dimensional in the way it's described because like, there's no sun, there's no moon, but there is a 24 hour day night cycle. There's no stars. Light just happens. And their version of noon is called peak and their version of midnight is called anti-peak. So those are the brightest and the darkest times. And if you look up, uh, you generally just sort of can see like a haze or depending on the time of day, you might be able to see some sort of stretched version of the other side of the city. Uh, it's, it's trying to, it's trying to achieve like a weird description of your perception while being limited to describing something beyond three-dimensional perception only with words. Uh, but I think I sort of get what it's getting at. And so then you've got, then you've got sort of the, the whole central plane around which, uh, like in the center of which is the spire. And then it's surrounded by all these different towns, basically. And it's, I, I, in, in my notes, I described it as demi-planes of dread with an extra planar coat of paint. Because when um, the Demiplanes book came out a few years ago, it was like, oh, here's the circus Demiplane and here's the Egyptian Demiplane, which is no different really than the Ravenloft stuff that came out, you know, back in the day. But uh, it's just I, I, it's thematic and homogenous gate towns like um, all the they're like worlds within a world. It's like how every alien world in Star Trek is represented by one culture and one people like in uh, the dump. It's like this rusty metal place full of like metal machines and things like that. Uh, Automata. It's full of like robots and Modrons. Glorium, full of giants. Excelsior, full of celestials. Sylvania, full of fey. Uh, Plague Mort, full of demons. And Plague Mort, by the way, sounds like the name of a place from a Terry Pratchett book. <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah. Um, so. That And there again, we get back into what I was saying of like, it's all good. There's nothing wrong with it. It just didn't surprise me at all 
um, with with the way they handle things there. And then there's oh, go ahead. There's one town in particular that's mentioned in the adventure. Um, Faunel. Mm-hmm. I remember which, seeing that in the book, which I found fascinating because it's supposed to be like a jungle town. Mm-hmm. Um, and they specifically here. I mean, I'll just read this verbatim. Uh, it's one of the. Oh, Lord. What is what is the name of the um, the skulls? Mimiers. Yeah. Uh, one of the Mimiers for Faunel has a quote that goes, Faunel's one of the wildest places in the Outlands. Most of the locals here are talking animals, but don't let yourself go primal. The last time things got too wild, the whole gate town tipped right into the beast lands. Oh, yeah, that's what you were telling me about how all the Outlands towns exist, like just sort of on the threshold of the plane that they're associated with. Yeah, which I find super compelling and fascinating, both from the stance of like, here is this almost like a way village before you jump into that whole dimension. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, <laughs> uh, I think it was, who was it? It was Brennan Lee Mulligan was talking about this, where he's like, imagine being a town like Excelsior, where everyone's lawful good, and everyone's really kind and polite and helpful to each other, except if they're too kind and polite and good to each other, then the whole town goes to heaven. So it's like a day a year, everybody has to line up and slap the mayor. And the mayor's <sighs> like, no, no, you gotta, you gotta hit me as hard as you can because they'll, they'll know up there. <laughs> it's like, it's like all these towns exist orbiting a black hole, right? They're, they're right. Bit. They're right on the event horizon and they yeah. can just like fall into it. Right. Oh, they even describe in Faunel. They're like, yeah, we have to be careful because the previous town fell into the Beastlands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah. And so then, like, outside of all those towns, then you have all the other planes that, that are out there. Um, and uh, anybody watching on video can see I've got the Planescape map uh, that came in the back of the book sort of stretched out on my pinball machine over there um it's a fantastic little piece of art um the uh the main focus of it really is the spire and the outlands um the whole other side of it is just a map of sigil so it doesn't really talk about any of the outer stuff all that much um but it's 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 interesting to have as a reference yeah i thought it was kind of fascinating how they talk about since it's not really 3d space um mm-hmm. there's they're still going to use North, West, East, and South, just to give you some kind of frame of reference. But mm-hmm. they very specifically outline, and I suspect they did this in the uh, setting guide book as well. These will not be polar magnetic directions. Yeah. These will be very strange and seemingly kind of random. And we're just giving you these so that you can make some sense of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think the only compass that they mentioned is like a portal compass that can direct you to other portals. But I like talking about how I interpreted it as sort of like fourth dimensionality, like the the sort of informal names for the directions that are orthogonal to um, 
like three dimensional directions is like, you know, we have like up, down, left, right, you know, north, south, all this stuff. Then there's chalk and cheese because we have no concept for them. So you can't like you, one name is as good as another because there's <laughs> literal, we literally can't perceive what that direction would be. So that's, that's how I interpreted some of that. It's like, you might just end off going in some sort of fourth dimensional direction. And cause really that's what like planar travel would be. It's like linking two three-dimensional locations together through the fourth dimension. So you might yeah. just accidentally slip through someplace. A compass rose by any other name would smell as sweet. A hyper rose. <laughs> um, so uh, then the the book gives you two ex- two new backgrounds for your character. You've got the gate warden. And the best way I can come up, I can explain that is like if a Forgotten Realms character was like a modern day human, uh, living in the world today, then a uh, Planescape character is like Star-Lord. It's like somebody who's been out there and seen everything and like they can look at aliens and talk to them, doesn't phase them. It's basically somebody who's been to the planes, they've seen shit. Um, but, you know, that's that's really the only difference. Uh, and then there's Planar Philosopher, which is I, I have determined is sort of a D&D equivalent of like Christian Gnostics who are searching for like the hidden truth of the world, like, like the, the true way. And they're motivated entirely by trying to like find those hidden truths uh, about how the planes work and just how the multiverse works in concert. Uh, and I thought that was cool. The 12 factions, um, uh, this is not new, but uh, they all have different philosophies about how to live in the multiverse, how to navigate it, how it works. Um, you know, it, it talks about players being able to make their own faction, but you just have to have like a core philosophy that's based on sort of a presumed truth about the multiverse. You have to have a leader that embodies those beliefs and your character doesn't really have to be that leader. And, it, you know, it may be better if your character is not that leader, but they have to be a person that you have to figure out. And then you have to have a, uh, an HQ that's in, that's in sigil or somewhere there. There's five new feats. There's a handful of new magical items like the Mimir, which is if I don't think we clarified it, but it's a flying, it's a mechanical flying skull that functions as a library and repository of all information. So it's like a, a computer that flies around with you, basically. Um, and then there's the, uh, the good old Lady of Pain, which anybody who is familiar with Planescape will recognize the sort of unknowable ruler of Sigil. Um, uh, she's like her alignment is basically like cosmic neutral because she doesn't get involved in anything. She'll just float around the city with her attendants. And sometimes if you look at her wrong, she will punish you. Uh, and if you try to talk back to her or tell her that she's wrong, she'll often send you to the labyrinth, which is essentially a series of uh, uh, streets and roads with like high walls that all interconnect and all lead nowhere. It's like the maze. And it's like it's like back rooms, basically. You can just wander through there forever and die. Um, but like if you cross her, she can instantly drop you to one HP. And if you cross her again, she can just send you to the maze. And the book even goes out of its way to talk about how she has no stat block because she is essentially beyond comprehension. And the party cannot, through any conventional means, even come close to the idea of destroying her. <laughs> You made me wonder. I didn't see her in the uh, character. Well, I mean, I just said it. <laughs> in the monster blocks. <laughs> the book literally says she doesn't have one. Well, I wanted to make sure that uh, 
there wasn't something. Uh-huh. And there, there is literally nothing. Yeah. It goes straight from uh, Kolyarut to M- Malefant, which is <laughs> like Maelstrom and Elephant combined. <laughs> and it talks, the book I have talks a lot about portal travel too. Uh, and it actually does describe portal travel kind of in sort of a Rick and Morty kind of way. Um, the portals can go to different parts of the city, different planes from Sigil to the Outlands. It can go anywhere. Uh, you have to have like a physical anchor for one end of the portal and you can make your own. There's a really cool D100 table that's in there that uh, helps you sort of randomly generate them uh, with, uh, you know, where they lead and all that stuff. And the portals also have quirks. So think of it like exhaustion levels, I guess, for for a portal, because uh, like you can have a taxing portal and that really is a struggle to get through and you're not going to come out totally rosy on the other side. There's a tumbler lock portal, which needs a different key to open it every time. Uh, and there's a shifting portal, which, as you might expect, perhaps doesn't have the most consistent locations of output. Uh, but you can. Like there are ways you can go about creating them and you have to maintain them and stuff and you have to like have a key for some of them. Uh, and I think that's I think that's cool. I think it's nice to have some versatility. So it's not just like, OK, I'm just going to make this portal and walk through it and get where I need to go. Like it would be great if like there was and I guess you could do this really easily. But like every portal you create has, you know, some chance and you just roll on it of being uh, like one of these ones that has problems. <laughs> Um, you were talking a little bit about the, like the portals sigil because sigil is like a center, like a hub for -hmm. all of this portal travel. It ends up with this sort of like big city melting pot vibe, Mm -hmm. um, kind of like they describe in radiant citadel, but I would say like even larger city. Yeah. It's supposed to be pretty massive as I understand it. Yeah. And that's, that's really interesting to me. Um, because I, I've sort of had this in the back of my head. It's like Radiant Citadel. It's interesting that that book exists because clearly at the time that came out, they knew they were going to be doing Planescape. And the concept is just so similar, right? Well, uh, on a smaller scale. And I know yes. and I know part of the reason that they did Radiant Citadel was to address other criticisms that they had had uh in their content so that i'm sure played into it as well but it's just it's just interesting that two books that are so sort of thematically slash mechanically connected came out in such a short period of time i mean if you think about it from a marketing standpoint then what radiant citadel was was sort of the the vanguard for this Mm -hmm. they released radiant citadel to see what kind of hype would get built um Spelljammer, I think, was the much more obvious, like, we're going to be doing things with the Planescape. Mm -hmm. But Radiant Citadel, that came out shortly before Spelljammer, Mm -hmm. as I recall. It was like a year and a half, two years ago that that came out. Because that was before I I moved, and I moved just over a year ago. Yeah. So the Radiant Citadel coming out, I think, was kind of uh, Wizards putting their big toe in the water. Mm Mm-hmm. And determining whether or not it was the right time to finalize the work that they've been doing on Planescape. Because mm-hmm. I think they've been playing with the idea of Planescape for a while. Oh, yeah. I mean, if they had, like, like let's say, you know, 5e came out in 2014. I would say by, like, 2018, 
like it was the 800 pound gorilla that it is now. Right. So like they knew it was on a roll and then COVID only accelerated that. Um, so yeah, if they hadn't been thinking about sort of the timing of a Planescape release, uh, since then it would be really foolish. So they have to have been thinking of it for at least five years. Yeah. And I think what they did was they released Radiant Citadel specifically to address some of the more like writer based concerns that people had been pressing on them. But mm-hmm. additionally to go, are we ready for a Planescape release? If mm-hmm. we release Planescape right now, it's going to be expensive for us to finish it. Right. And it's going to be expensive for us to get these box sets out. We can release a single setting guide adventure book and see how that does and then use that to determine whether the time is right. Mm-hmm. And I think it did well enough that they were like, yeah, let's pull this lever. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's probably a pretty reasonable way to look at it. Uh, I was just I had just thought of that as we were talking about this, um, because there again, like I think from a conceptual standpoint, Radiant Citadel was nothing that really like deviated from from the norm of what you would expect from sort of a D&D multiversal kind of book. Uh, it didn't get, if anything, it went less weird than Planescape. Um, like, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, it went significantly less weird than Planescape. Um, but Planescape was just the weird that we expected rather than a weird that could have been. Fair. I think, I think it's really just that sort of tester strip to see if everything's going to work. And it did. And here we are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> in the adventure book, as you get out into the outlands, obviously you're going to be exploring these gate towns. That's mm-hmm. a big part of the campaign is exploring these gate towns. The whole adventure goes from level three to level 17. I think I recall. Really? That's a weird spread. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's double checking. Yes. The final chapter you are level 17 for. So it's, it is a big big span of adventure and Mm -hmm. um i think part of the reason for that is they expect the characters to be fairly self-contained this is not built to be something that you insert into your campaign you are already running Mm -hmm. and then you go off to other adventures this is really meant to be you create the characters for this adventure they grow up through this adventure and then once it's over you retire them is Mm -hmm. my expectation Mm -hmm. um the when you're in the outlands they've got a few additional like random encounter type things that you can do mm-hmm. uh, one of which i was really excited about because it's called angels in the outlands yeah and it's about an army of angels and demons that uh every so often uh have a mock battle via a game called spireball mm-hmm. and you're allowed to side with either of those groups uh to push the flow of things one way or another that's yeah (laughs) so good yeah i um i very much enjoy baseball as a conflict resolution mechanic in fiction um prime examples are in um uh die ranger one of my favorite super sentai series uh uh, which came right after Zhu Ranger, which was adapted into Power Rangers. Uh, there is a a loose trilogy 
uh, of the Die Rangers having to compete against some of the villains in various sports like soccer and baseball. So there's <laughs> like a baseball episode and there's a soccer episode. And then, of course, there's the, the classic uh, Deep Space Nine episode, Take Me Out to the Holosuite, where uh, a Vulcan captain challenges Cisco to a baseball game because he dislikes Cisco and he wants to humble him by beating him at his game. Uh, and so Cisco makes the entire command crew of Deep Space Nine play on his baseball team to defeat the Vulcans. Amazing. Yeah. That's so good. <laughs> so there's a there's a little of that in here as well, if you mm -hmm. should choose to include it. Um, these are these are optional encounters. Another one, which this this seems a little less optional, mm -hmm. um, is the Renes Nupra which mm -hmm. is an adult time dragon okay. who encounters the party uh, kind of out of sequence. Mm -hmm. And so it's a little bit like the uh, Doctor Who River Song romance. Spoilers. Where there's like, there's like confusion about when and how they're meeting each other. Mm -hmm. They both seem to know more about each other than the other does at right. times. So I, I was like, that's honestly, if you're going to be doing a setting like this, that is a fun thing to include. Uh, there's a whole zone that's called, what is it? It's chrono, chronopsis, chronosepsis. It's probably not chronosepsis. That sounds like a disease, a time <laughs> disease, a time infection. <laughs> I'm going to write that down. Uh, <laughs> time infection? No, chronosepsis. It is it is the mausoleum of Chronepsis, and it's uh it is a time based area where dragons from across the plains come to seek to learn the secrets of fate, which is pretty fascinating. I don't I don't want to get into too much detail on any of this stuff because I know players listen to our show just as much as GMs do, right? And there's that is the one big complaint that I have about this is that there is uh, some of the writing is to me at the very least kind of predictable, mm -hmm. like the way certain adventures are going to go, the sorts of like, oh, it starts out looking like this, but then, uh huh, it's actually like this, like those sorts of things. I was like, I started reading the adventure and I'm like, I bet this. And then I was right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't. Maybe that's just because I'm so deeply entrenched in GM brain. Um, hopefully folks experience with it at a table is different. And you're they're like, it, oh, my God, I never saw that coming. It's called genre savvy. <laughs> I, that may be the whole issue, but it definitely there were multiple occasions where I was like, oh, I bet it, I bet they're going to do this thing. And then they did. And I was like, oh, called it again. Yeah. Um, I want to mention the, the, like the credits that were in the front of the book. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about being big fans of some of, uh, like Zeb Cook's work back in the eighties and nineties, uh, setting aside the, um, Conan, the barbarian book that he was probably forced to do at gunpoint. Uh, uh, but I, I thought it was interesting that it, it talks about credits and it says special thanks to the original setting designers. And it's like, you know, Monty Cook, Wolfgang Bauer, um, you know, names that everybody knows. 
Um, and it like takes a few minutes before I think I, Wolfgang Bauer actually came after Zeb Cook, but it takes a few minutes to get to Zeb Cook, which is kind of surprising because as as the legend goes, like he, Zeb Cook came up with Planescape. He was the lead designer on it. He wrote the whole thing like somebody somebody in the office like tasked him with coming up with a setting based on like the planar handbook. And he's like, yeah, okay, let me fool with it for a couple months. And then he came up with Planescape at that point. So it's just, it's kind of weird and a little disappointing that uh, Zeb's not getting the uh, recognition that I feel like, you know, is probably owed to him on that. Um, but, you know, uh, it also doesn't surprise me, I guess, because like, once again, we're in a situation where like somebody who's like 17 and getting this has no idea who Zeb Cook, who was born in 1934, is or anything that he's ever done. Like the man's 89 years old. I mentioned to you earlier today that it was wild looking at his Wikipedia page, because if you look at the photo of him on there, it was taken in 2016. So he would have been like 80, like 84, I think something like that, 83. And he looks like a man in his mid 60s. I mean, it's just wild. Like Zeb Cook has a phylactery. Like it, <laughs> he is very well preserved, sitting on a philosopher's stone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he could look. Mu- he could. He could look much different than he did in 2016. Uh, at this point, but still. Uh, I also speaking of folks who were involved in the original Planescape uh, that deserve thanks for what we've currently been looking at. Uh, Tony Dieterlitzi, which mm-hmm. I hope I pronounced well. Uh, I read the phonetic pronunciation off his FAQ on his website. Mm-hmm. So Dieterlitzi Le- sounds like a German man, uh, uh, like a German whose father was Italian. It's it's Die- Dieterlitzi. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Dieterlitzi. It's Dieterlitzi. Uh, <laughs> But he did a lot of the cover art, uh, mm-hmm. both for the original Planescape and for this new version. And he also did all of the art for the GM screen, which yeah. is gorgeous. One GM of, screen. One of my favorite pieces out of the entire box set is how gorgeous this GM screen is. I think I might actually use this at games. Yeah, I um, I've got the Spelljammer um set behind me and the uh gm screen that you got with that one is way cooler than the one that came with Spelljammer. i think i i like it a lot it's Mm -hmm. beautiful um but i was that was one of those things where we were literally looking it up right before recording where i was like why does this name seem familiar and it's like oh he did the art for the original planescape that's Mm -hmm. why that's why his name seems familiar. Yeah, the yeah these Lady of Pain drawings uh, come with a pedigree uh, <laughs> in the updated one. Yeah. That's cool. It's it's always it's always cool to see like old artists come back. Like I know there have been some situations where we've looked at some of these books and things and realized it was an artist that you know, or maybe they did magic cards in the '90s or something, or they worked on some of the uh, some original art for some of the second or third or fourth edition stuff. It's always it's always cool to see that they bring those kind of people back. Yeah, well, I mean, when you've got talented artists who've done work with you before, mm-hmm. it's it's kind of like known quantities on both sides of the table, right? Right. It's an ideal scenario, right? Um. So, is there anything uh, uh, left about the two books that you looked at? 
that you really need to get off your chest? I don't, I don't think so. I think I don't want to get too much into what kinds of monster blocks there are in there. I will say I saw some abilities on some of these monsters that I was like, (laughs) Um, but I, you know, I don't want to spoil things for people who are going to play because if they see that monster and they're like, I've listened to Goblin's Crawlers, I know what's coming next. Then their GM is going to be mad at me specifically. And I don't want that. Um, The art's gorgeous. The monster blocks are nice and varied, which is always fantastic. I did notice they have a lot of alignments still. Uh-huh. But they say now they say typically, typically lawful good, mm-hmm. typically chaotic evil, and I'm like, just get rid of the freaking yeah. like. Look at the large red demon creature, yeah, and look at the context that the party's meeting them in, and go. This is how this creature is going to behave. Yeah, it feels. It feels like in trying to avoid stereotyping, they have gone harder on stereotyping <laughs> by adding the word typically in there. Yeah, it's keeping to type. They're like this. And it's like, that's the whole problem. Was yeah. Stop it. Yeah. Um, but overall, I really liked what I read. I really enjoyed, though I felt like the adventures, I was, I was predicting the next turn before it was happening. The mm-hmm. world and the way it's portrayed is really fun. Uh, there's a lot of really fascinating stuff to explore. There's a lot of really fun stuff to explore. Mm-hmm. It gives you some flexibility as far as uh, how you get places and what you do once you get there. And it is, I saw multiple points where they encouraged failing forward. Mm-hmm. Like, like if you go into Excelsior, a town that is lawful good, and full of lawful typically. good celestial, typically <laughs> full of lawful good celestial beings, typically, um, and you start doing a bunch of crime, mm-hmm. then the primary NPC who's showing you around is like, uh, you know what? Uh, here, here's your payment. Please leave. <laughs> <laughs> Which you know, like that makes sense for the scenario, but it's fun to see that be the case because i know i've read one too many modules where it's like oh well if the party's not going to behave themselves in front of the major domo then they're going to get kicked out of the duke's castle and it's like well how does the adventure proceed from there it doesn't they have to go do a different adventure (laughs) (laughs) and it's like what why would you write it this way why would you set it up so that there's like one way in and the gm has to figure out anything else uh, it's just, you know, differences in writing styles, I guess. Um, I guess. I guess my big, my biggest takeaway from Planescape um, is, and I, you know, maybe I'm not looking at it correctly, but it feels like something that is harder to use as a sandbox setting. Because... Mm. It does feel like they fleshed a lot out. Yeah, I'm just thinking like, you know, Forgotten Realms, Faerun, like, of course, that's a sandbox setting because Wizards has treated it as the only setting for so long. Um, Like, you know, Strahd, not a really good sandbox setting, very prescribed series of events that goes on there. Spelljammer, I feel like opening yourself up to sort of the crystal spheres and all that stuff, you can with you can very easily 
adapt that into a sandbox where you can just drop in your own homebrew stuff um, and and follow some threads and things, especially if you're like on the spell jammer. Uh, Planescape, it just it feels it feels more like an event rather than a steady state. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, I get what you're saying, and I don't think the adventure book does a whole lot to discourage that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the creatives among us will find ways to rip components out of this mm-hmm. and use them in a variety of ways that are fun. But I, I absolutely see what you're saying, and I'm, I'm inclined to kind of agree. This is built to be less of a setting guide and more of an adventure. Yeah, I mean, and like going back to Curse of Strahd for a second, like that didn't even become kind of a setting guide until they released that supplemental Demi Plains book, which happened years later. Right. Um, and and even then, it's still probably a little difficult to play that as a sandbox rather than just like, here's some one offs that we can go through and I will loosely thread them together or something. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't even know if this is a criticism. It's just an observation. I think that's a fair observation. Um, so I think for final thoughts, how do you feel about having spent $80 on this? Um, well, I want my $17 and 62 cents or however <laughs> back. Um, Wizards of the Coast. Um, I mean, I'm going to be, I'll be very honest. I enjoy it. I'm glad it exists. Uh, I think they did uh, for for what their goal was, I think they did a very good job with it. I probably won't end up playing it much or at all. And that's probably because I don't think it works really well as a sandbox. Because, um, you know, I can spend all day shitting on uh, the Forgotten Realms because they overuse it. They rely on it too much and they've made it familiar and familiarity breeds contempt. But at the end of the day, if I want to just like, drop my Faerun map down on a table and just like throw it or, or throw a dart at it or something. Like if it hits the Dale lands, I can run an adventure in the Dale lands. <laughs> you know, if it, uh, if it hits like the Zentrum tower, I can have something going on with the Zentrum or something like that. There's just, there's a lot of options with that. And maybe, maybe I just don't have as mu- enough familiarity just yet with this sort of new iteration. But again, it feels very prescribed what you're supposed to do. I think if we're fortunate, they will see the popularity of this because I've I've heard of a lot of people picking up this set of books. Mm -hmm. Um, And the next thing they'll do is they'll release a setting guide for it. Yeah, I think that would be great. Just and it doesn't even have to be anything crazy. Like I would even take one of the old like 40 or 50 pagers that they would that they softbound that just, you know, had like uh, several threads for adventures and flesh them out a little bit. Yeah. I could see that being really good. Yeah. Uh, for for my part, just for the monster book and the DM screen, that's like half or even like two thirds of the value right there for me. Yeah. I, they yeah, are. You're right wonderful. about that. You're right about that. <laughs> Speaking as somebody who for a long time just used a three ring binder as my DM screen, uh, it's very nice to have something made for the purpose and yeah. looks looks really good and looks really pro. Oh, gorgeous. I, I, I would maybe that maybe that's my my seventeen dollars and sixty some cents. <laughs> maybe it was for a nice DM screen. All that's all it was, just that yeah. for a nice DM screen. Yeah, I think I think 
I I am getting my $80 worth out of this set of books. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I would still like to see a setting guide, but we'll see. Maybe they'll mm-hmm. maybe they'll bring us that. Yeah. Get on that, Jeremy. <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, do we have? Uh, oh, wait. Yeah, I guess we should ask people what they think. Um, do uh, you know if you've picked up, you know, Planescape, you've had a month to take a look at it now, like. If you think I'm an idiot, like, and I'm just not seeing the big picture here, I would love for you to come into the Discord and tell me that. Um, you know, just, you know, feel free, feel free, bit.ly slash goblin discord uh, at way of Brandalore, you're an idiot. Um, <laughs> you know, if you, if, if you have some, uh, very well reasoned criticisms, uh, or, or well reasoned opinions on your own supporting what we've said, uh, even better. Um, just drop those in there as well. Uh, stop on by Brandon mentioned earlier, the newsletter that's mm-hmm. once a month. Yep. That's link tr.ee slash goblins and growlers is our link tree. The newsletter sign up is right there, right there. So easy to do. If not and, at the top, very close to the top. And it's always got a lot of good info and it's once a month. So it's not like he's pestering you. Yeah, exactly. I have no, I have no time or inclination to do it more than once a month. <laughs> You can find us on social media at Way of Brandalore or at Black Cloak DM or where available at Goblins Growlers or slash at Goblins and Growlers because in some places we lost the password to the and <laughs> can't and can't remember which email address to use to recover it. <laughs> it's a complex situation that's not imperative enough to address any limited mental energy to resolving. Um. So there's that. Do we need to do any sponsorship promos or anything? Uh, what I will say is that everybody should telephone, telegraph, tell a friend about the Goblins and Growlers podcast because word of mouth is the way to be. I agree. And as I often say, it is also the best ludicrous album. <laughs> um, and uh, I know we're uh, very, very past Halloween by the time you read this, but I would also encourage everybody, if you haven't, to make sure to go back and listen to our actual play of The Machine, uh, the indie journaling game. Uh, we put a lot of effort into that, and we're really proud of it. And even if you've listened to it, maybe listen to it again. Or telephone, telegraph, tell a friend to listen to The Machine. <laughs> And uh, follow was, our follow our link in that show note, and uh, you know, show the developers some love by buying their haunting journal game. Oh, a hundred percent! It's such a cool game, and I I feel really good about how it came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, not least of which, Scott's beautiful, beautiful editing on it. Thank you, absolutely. Scott. Absolutely. And uh, also, uh, we're still accepting rebuttals on uh, more unpopular D and D opinions. If you have strong opinions on floor dice, feel free to share them. Uh, <laughs> there are people who will be upset, and we live for that. That best place for that is, as always, in the Discord. <laughs> yeah. Bit.ly slash Goblin Discord. In the Discord, or if you want to buy a billboard next to a major highway, you can also <laughs> do that. Um, I God, think, that'd be amazing. Oh, it would. I'm not, I don't want to spend any company money on that, though. Um <laughs> Um, I guess the only other thing I can think of is like, uh, I'll be at PAX Unplugged, uh, the weekend after this comes out. Yeah. So, uh, me and Liz and Tess are going up there, uh, the, to, the second and third. Yes. 
Okay. Yeah. Just want to be sure. We're, go- we're going up there to do some looky looing and some networking and stuff like that. So it should be a good time. So if you yeah. s- if if you're around there, come by and say hi. That's in Philadelphia, uh, that first weekend in December. Um, and that's all I got. That's all I got. All right. Well, everybody, thanks for listening. We'll be back uh, in two weeks with something that we have written on a spreadsheet somewhere that I cannot recall (laughs) at the moment. But suffice it to say, we did plan it. (laughs) We did plan it. In fact, you know what? I know exactly what it is. Okay. Let's give them a a taste. We're going to talk about Cobalt Press, specifically the Black Flag Project and how that's going. (laughs) Yeah, Josh was over at the house a while back and we were talking about this and both of us have opinions. We have strong opinions. Yeah, but not as strong as floor dice. That's a hill that some people will die on. Uh, Good night, Snapshot. And we'll talk to you all later. Bye. Bye. like what you hear consider subscribing and giving us a review over on apple podcasts especially early in the feed subscriptions and reviews are super helpful for bringing new listeners our way thank you